Hello, and welcome to Skilled America, a podcast devoted to the policies, politics, and people driving the discussion on skills in today's economy. I'm your host, Rachel Unruh, Chief of External Affairs at National Skills Coalition. This is episode four, Re-Entering the Fray. COVID-19 is shining a spotlight on and accelerating existing challenges within the workforce development world. As cities and states seek to reduce their jail and prison populations to slow the spread of the virus, already stretched re-entry programs are working to address increased demand for their services. We talked to two people who work in re-entry services in cities that have reduced their incarcerated populations to find out how they are dealing with the increased demand and the challenges brought to bear by the pandemic. We'll also chat with a participant in one of these programs about his experience and what support men and women like him need both now and beyond our current circumstances. My name is Chris Wattler. I'm the Chief External Affairs Officer at the Center for Employment Opportunities, uh, CEO, as we're known. And CEO's sole mission is to help people who have criminal convictions, who are recently released from incarceration to find a job. And so since 1996, we have been serving people initially in our kind of founding uh, flagship office in New York City. That mission has expanded to serve people in 28 cities and 10 states, and the work starts right away. People can leave prison, be referred by a parole officer um, straight to CEO. Um, They come through our doors. They do a week-long orientation where we get them ready for work, make sure that they have all their work documents. Um, We'll do some Uh, cognitive behavioral uh, elements as part of that training. So really getting them to think about their thinking and their behavior and and the connection between the two. Um, And then we will give them a pair of steel toe boots, a CEO ID. And the next week they will be working on one of CEO's transitional work crews. You are on a work crew, you work three to four days a week. The other day, you will come into the office and see your job coach, and we will pay you every day. We use a, we have a debit card product that we use. We load the pay after each shift every day. So someone is coming right out of prison, and within a week, they're kind of earning some money while they're working with their job coach to remove any barriers that might prevent them from, from getting a job. We're a group of passionate people that believe in more than just second chances, but trying to help people uh, find a career pathway with sustainable wages and a life where they can they can find that ha- that happiness. That's Jeff Abramowitz. He's the executive director of Reentry Services for Jeff's Human Services in Philadelphia. And we are a social service agency with with um, very diverse. Um, group of um, programs. We work with men and women that are both behind the prison walls in Philadelphia County, uh, providing vocational training and services, as well as when men and women leave the prison walls, where we do reentry work and in our Looking Forward Philadelphia program that supports men and women as they try to navigate coming home from incarceration or battling with a criminal background. We also do a lot of work with uh, our participants around skills training. Uh, at many of our sites. That's, you know, important as well because many of our participants um, do not have a college uh, degree, much less a high school diploma or, uh, 
you know, may not have any work experience at all before coming to CEO. One of the things we want to talk about today is sort of both what challenges uh, your program faces in, in placing participants in employment before the COVID crisis, but also how the COVID crisis has impacted your work. As you can imagine, this has been a, a very kind of sudden and difficult transition as it has been for so many others. We have transitioned all of our vocational services to remote um, services. So we are engaging our participants remotely. As you can imagine, that's very challenging. Some of our crews uh, are still operating in some states where it is safe to do so. Um, We have reduced the uh, number of people who can be on a crew, particularly if if we are transporting people. So a crew of uh, five might become a crew of two to make sure that there's enough uh, distancing. Um, and our crews uh, primarily serve state and local government agencies. So we are often doing some of the cleanup work, the you know light maintenance work uh, for government agencies. You know some of that work has actually been extremely helpful during this crisis to state and local governments. For Jeff and the team at JEVS, difficulties have arisen in the ability to engage with their participants in meaningful ways under unusual circumstances. And the challenge is working virtually in a world where it's really hard uh, to, um, to gain people's trust and also to work with them in an environment where it's digitally over the computer, oftentimes where digital literacy is one of the biggest barriers that many of our clients have, and yet we're forced to to teach them and instruct them and get them on a platform that they may not be real comfortable with. So my staff, they've been really good at addressing things and looking at the hard issues of how can we service our clients better virtually um, because we can't see them face-to-face, but we know that staying in contact with them and speaking to them and talking to them and listening to them is really important. Including staff inside prisons who had been deemed essential personnel up until the day we talked to Jeff. So we've had our staff inside teaching classes and, and it's important from an inmate perspective because they are locked in uh, most of the time. And, you know, having that opportunity to get out, to get into a class, to educate themselves, it not only is um, educationally well, good for them, but it's mentally good for them to keep them, them busy. We've been hearing a lot nationally about counties and states that have been reducing their prison populations in an effort to respond to COVID and and try to contain the virus from spreading. What has that looked like for you in Philadelphia and what issues were the prisons facing and how did they go about reducing uh, capacity? Um, I know that Pennsylvania is trying to be aggressive about it, but to be honest with you, it hasn't been a, a widening of the door. There's just been a, a slit open of the door. The challenge has been that Inside our prison walls, uh, once the once COVID virus hits inside, um, there's no social distancing because they're close. They're very close quarters. There's very little medical treatment that can be offered. So the challenges inside the walls are significant, but they're even as significant when they come home. Because if we allow people just to come home and we don't provide any support services for them then that's also a, a big mistake because we need to be able to give them some guidance when you come home and you're being released. You know, how can you find a career opportunity? What support services are out there? How can we get you transportation to even get from the prison to your house? Um, do you have a house to go to? Are you going to go to a shelter? 
And many of the shelters now in Philadelphia are not taking people unless they've been quarantined for 14 days. So oftentimes we're, we're just afraid to see that people are going to be let out, left out on the streets. And we're doing everything we can to connect them into places where they'll get the, um, they'll get the right resources. You know, I wish I could say that, um, you know, uh, prisons have had a, had a plan for uh, how to deal with this crisis. Here's Chris Watler of CEO again. So I think like a lot of government agencies, prisons systems have really been struggling to, uh, to understand, you know, how to address the crisis. And we, we are very concerned about the conditions in many uh, prisons, the things, you know, that we're hearing. We think that, you know, it's really important for our partners in corrections and you know, to really move as quickly as possible uh, to create safe conditions. And a, a part of that, I think, is, is to release people um, who do not pose a public safety uh, risk to the community and who would be better served by, you know, not being in jail or prison at this time. In New York State, there are about 1,100 people in jails on technical parole violations. These are not crimes. These are things like missing a curfew or, you know, uh, a failure to, sh- to show up for a parole meeting. And these individuals are individuals that are, you know, in local jails where there is not social distancing. There is not, you know, p- personal protective equipment. We unfortunately have already seen uh, staff at the jail impacted by COVID. And recently, Someone who was in the jail at Rikers Island in New York City, unfortunately, passed away. He was in there on a technical parole violation. We've been advocating for years that technical parole violations, by and large, should not result in prison uh, or jail stays. And uh, we're at all possible uh, to make sure that those stays are as short as possible. So I'm always saying days and weeks, not months and years, which is the case on some of these minor uh, violations. And so, you know, we think that in New York State, they're moving in a really great direction. We'd like to see it move faster. But moving faster also means a pretty dramatic increase in the demand for services that organizations like CEO offer. Before this crisis, we were on track to serve almost 8,000 people across the country. You know, there are about 650,000 people that, that leave prisons annually. And about 200, 250,000 of those are individuals who are considered high risk, like most likely to return to prison. We've seen the unemployment numbers. We saw what happened in the last major recession in 2008. We know that people at the bottom of the, of the kind of skills ladder, of the employment ladder, of the education ladder, never really fully recovered from the last recession. So... This situation we're confronting in the labor market is unprecedented um, in its, the, the quickness at which it has happened. And I expect that we're going to see a much higher demand for services because we want to help people get jobs who are going to have a hard time finding jobs. Look, the reality is that the unemployment rate for returning citizens, men and women with criminal backgrounds, was 27% before COVID hit. Here's Jeff of Jevs in Philadelphia again. 27% of those people that are returning go unemployed. And that's, that was higher than the peak of the Great Depression. That is now all going to change. Because although our, our national unemployment rate was 2 3% or less, um, now we have a flood of people coming into the workforce. 
And that flood of people coming into the workforce means there are people that don't have criminal backgrounds that maybe hadn't made those choices in their life before that may take priority over people that have backgrounds and that are going to get weeded out. We've come so far in advocating for um, just a fairness across the board, give returning citizens equal opportunity, let them show their skills and their talent, let them tell their stories with everyone else, that the fear really right now is that, that they're not going to be given the same chances as anyone else that's coming back into the workforce. I really worry that if we don't provide support services for men and women that have gone through our criminal justice system or that have backgrounds and maybe that have been out for years and they're now just getting back into the workforce, that there's going to be a serious um, employment crisis in the country. And, um, and I worry about that, especially for men and women trying to start over again. But even when those support services are available, providing them comes with its own set of challenges in the form of the inequities that returning citizens struggle with. It's tough, right? Do people have access to the Internet? Do they have the technology that, they, you know, a, a phone, a laptop, a computer, you know, there's still this digital divide. And I think that, you know, makes it really hard to do the kinds of things that a lot of other people are doing very easily. Right. So Zoom meetings are wonderful or Google Hangouts are wonderful ways to engage with people. But if you don't have a computer, if you don't have Internet access, you know, really hard to you know, to do that work with our clients. Returning citizens struggle with a lot of those really basic things when they come home, like transportation. Well, transportation today is in Philadelphia almost, it's one of the most challenging things because our bus systems and our subway systems now are on very bare schedules and they're very, they're very restricted and getting to a bus and getting to work on time poses challenges. And we're just at the tip of the iceberg now. You know, there's a lot gonna be happening in workforce development as far as getting people into jobs and opportunities. But I truly believe that, you know, providing comprehensive skill development and incentives for employers to hire returning citizens, um, educating returning citizens, walking with them and giving them a really, there needs to be a holistic approach dealing with this. My name is Darnell Manuel. I'm currently in the JEVS program. I am 52 years old, a bachelor's degree in communications, minor in business, a little bit of criminal justice and theater but I've made some choices that landed me in prison. Darnell now lives in Philadelphia. He was introduced to Jevs by his mother and takes part in their Looking Forward Philadelphia program. When you have a criminal background and you get in front of people, whether you're educated or not educated, you feel like there's a swinging pendulum over you that's ready to knock you down before you can say a word. They make it comfortable for us with the resume classes, the business workshops. They make it comfortable for you to come there and be comfortable and say, oh, you know what? I might have a chance for, I, have, I might have another chance here. I might have another chance in life. I might have another chance to raise my child or my grandchild, or maybe one day have a 401k. Some of these guys, these men and women have not, you know, have not grown up with a family foundation and a, and a, and a background where it was educational. And that now they're learning, hey, you can get education too. We can help you get to school. We can help you you know, if you're illiterate, if you're dyslexic, if, if you ha you lack skills or math skills, they are giving everybody an opportunity now to get into a flow where life can be theirs again. To work in the workforce and be trusted again, you know, be trusted to hold these jobs and provide for their families because we, we know, you know, we need money to uh, live. We need money to pay our rent. 
to drive our cars, put gas in our cars. Can you tell me a little bit about what your goals are that you're trying to achieve through the program, both sort of in terms of your immediate goals and, and longer term? I'm 52. I'm older now. I play football all my life. My knees are not great. You know, I'm, I could be considered disabled, but I'm not. But I can still walk around, but I can't do warehouse work. But I can work with my mind. I want to be in, you know, prison reform. I want to put myself in a position where um, I'm dealing with a program where I can help these guys. I know enough in my experience at the age of 52 to know that I know what life is really about. And I have transference with some of these guys who don't really have never had the opportunity to get education and see the world and, and see life on life terms where, you know, they, there's hope there. You know, I've had that hope and I know that hope is going to, I mean, Jeff has given me a, an opportunity basically to look at my life and say, you know what? I can do this. I don't have to do it the way I did it before, but I can do it a different way and move on forward and look forward to a better life. You know, you put your priorities in order so that you can work from a position of strength and not strain. Some people have been in jail for 30 years and they reenter into society and they're lost. They don't even know what an iPhone is or, or Android or a smartphone is. And these are things that, you know, devs and, and these programs can provide for these people who are pretty much lost and, you know, take them to another uh, level in society. I know that these guys really care about our futures. I can tell that they, um, really are invested in what they believe in as far as, you know, helping people get jobs. Given how many people are going to be returning home right now because of COVID, what would you say to folks um, who have yet to find opportunities uh, like the ones that you've been experiencing at Jeff's? Everybody's going to be looking for jobs, you know, and I know a lot of people are out of work. A lot of people have lost their jobs and, and a lot of people have been laid off, but everybody doesn't have a college degree. People want to do great things and want to do good, but the opportunities are very slim. I, I would just tell these guys, I say, look, man, hold on, be patient, be prayerful, and I think the sun's definitely going to come out again. If I can help, I'm going to help. You know, I mean, I've, we we when we do our workshop wraps, we all exchange numbers and we all encourage each other, man, because you know you can't do it alone. You, you can't because you, you, we. I mean, we need each other. We the whole country, we need each other. They're teaching me how. To, to deal with the narrative, you know, that, hey, okay, you have the criminal background, but we're going to try to kick these doors down so these, that, so these corporations will know that, hey, look, we got a guy who has experience in life, who has experience working, and, you know, he's ready. In CEO's case, we're seeing millions of people lose a job. Many of them are going to be low-wage, low-skill workers. They're going to be the very people that we serve, people with criminal convictions. They're going to have the hardest time. Uh, in, in any recovery scenarios. Many of our clients also have quite uh, pronounced just mental health needs generally. They've, many of them are survivors of trauma. Their life may be chaotic, but CEO, there's some order. When they come, they come to work or they're meeting with their job coach. Um, so, you know, we do worry about uh, our participants as a result of that. So we want to make sure that we're keeping the capacity of organizations like CEO to be there uh, for folks we often are in a position of having to uh, provide critical services to our clients, but at the same time, not get paid enough to do those services. And we have to do a lot of fundraising, a lot of other things to cobble together 
uh, resources for that. Obviously, this pandemic is is a crisis that nobody has a playbook for or has experienced before. But the fact is, you know, individuals experience crisis in their lives on a daily basis. And so the flexibility that we need right now as a society is the same flexibility that, you know, individuals need all of us at different moments in our lives. Are you getting the support that you need from state and federal policymakers right now to continue to provide that sort of grounding and just, you know, continuing to connect and support uh, the participants in your communities? And if not, what more could they be doing? It's still, in my view, very early. But, you know, there there are some real, real challenges, uh, you know, moving forward for us. Uh, So I think it's important to think about how to make it easier for nonprofits to be a full partner in responding during the crisis, um, getting technology for clients, making sure they have internet access, maybe paying them to do remote learning and remote training. Those could, those could be things that um, could continue in the future. It could be a way to deliver some services at lower cost, but also to um, you know, make sure that, that our, our participants are able to really access help you know, when they need it in a more flexible way. And then there's some things that are, you know, I think just common sense. Uh, the state could be requesting more money uh, from the federal government for SNAP. Uh, in New York, I only get about 2% of, of the budget in New York is supported by SNAP ENT. In a place like Ohio and some of the cities there are sites, it's about 40%. Um, so we think the state can make uh, changes to that program. They do, that would not cost the state money. The match has to come from providers, but it would open up more support for some of the services that, you know, workforce providers are already providing uh, for clients, allowing us to get reimbursed for those services. No, I think there's so much more that they could and they should be doing. I mean, we can't just let people um, come home from our prison system without giving them the support systems. I want people to understand that it's, it's not just about finding a job for somebody that returns home especially with COVID-19, it's going to be about helping people navigate their future, their career. And that means not just throwing them into a job and giving them a job, but giving them an opportunity with a, a, a wage that's sustainable to sustain their families, which gives them an opportunity to advance, which gives them a future. People are, are dying, losing their lives. That's hard. People in prisons are also suffering. Um, and the staff who work in these facilities, while we're responding to this crisis now in ways that are unprecedented and, may, and necessary, um, you know, I also want us to keep in mind that, that in a recovery, as we move forward, we want to make sure that we have what we need in place to really help and support uh, you know, our, our fellow community members who are most vulnerable. And to think about people who are leaving uh, incarceration, not just as a, a problem to be solved. There are so many amazing people who are, can be a real resource to the community. We need our legislators to step up and start enacting significant laws that will allow men and women coming home from prison or that have criminal backgrounds to get back into the workplace. And, um, and that's going to take both money and some time. And, um, and a real um, advocacy piece on people that are in the workforce development field. It's an opportunity for employers to change the way they hire, 
Um, this is an opportunity for communities to really support workforce programs and training programs to help um, low-level, low-skilled job seekers to access uh, good jobs, you know, and what you'll find is a really eager workforce. I hope that that spirit will, will as it always has, translate uh, into a more generous and um, uh, just, just a kinder uh, country, given what we're going through now. We, we gotta, we're going to need these legislators and these policymakers to, you know, I mean, really, like, open the door. You know, because we, uh, we we all need each other, I believe. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Really appreciate uh, the time you took and, and hearing from you. Thank you for allowing me to share. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. And, and do stay safe and keep doing what you're doing. Chris Watler is the Chief External Affairs Officer at the Center for Employment Opportunities, or CEO a nonprofit providing comprehensive employment services exclusively to individuals who have recently returned home from incarceration, active in 28 cities and 10 states. Jeff Abramowitz is the executive director of reentry services for Jev's Human Services, a Philadelphia-based nonprofit that provides a number of programs that serve individuals with physical, developmental, and emotional challenges as well as those facing adverse socioeconomic conditions, including unemployment and underemployment. Darnell Manuel lives in Philadelphia and is a participant in Jev's Looking Forward Philadelphia program, which provides an array of social services and employment help designed to meet the immediate and longer-term needs of individuals returning from incarceration. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. On our next episode, our instructors didn't really have adequate prior experience in delivering online instruction. Some of them don't really have adequate devices like laptops with cameras and microphones to be able to deliver synchronous online classes. We hope you'll join us. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Unruh. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time for another in-depth look at Skilled America.